It was nearly mid-September 1944 and a dark, hot night in Mattoon, Illinois. The town was on high alert, and so was a woman whom we'll call Mildred. Mildred read the latest news about the mad gasser in the Mattoon Journal-Gazette before climbing into bed. With the criminal's latest activities fresh in her mind, she feared every rustle of the trees was a stranger approaching. There had been seven attacks since the last issue of the paper, and still the police hadn't caught the culprit. Anxiety kept Mildred from falling asleep. She lived alone. And just as her eyelids finally began to grow heavy, she heard a noise coming from the flower beds under her living room window. Fear welled up inside of Mildred. It was the gasser. It had to be. When Mildred hit the lights, she saw the identity of her prowler, a raccoon. As welcome as this reveal was, Mildred couldn't calm herself down. She spent the next few weeks on edge, unable to think rationally. Mildred was just one of the many Mattoon citizens to fall prey to her paranoia and to imagine an attack from a mad gasser who maybe didn't exist. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the Mad Gasser, also known as the Phantom Anesthetist. For two weeks in 1944, the elusive individual terrorized the small Midwestern town of Mattoon, Illinois. Last time, we examined the Mad Gasser attacks and discussed how they catapulted Mattoon into the national spotlight. Today, we'll unpack why Mattoon's chief of police, C.E. Cole, attributed the gassings to mass hysteria. We'll explore other historical incidents of this phenomenon and unpack several other documented cases of gas attacks to determine what actually happened in Mattoon in 1944. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Over the course of two weeks in September 1944, an unknown predator attacked over 30 Mattoon citizens in their homes. The spectral anesthetist wielded an unidentified chemical weapon, a gas that induced flu-like symptoms and often partial paralysis. Thanks to a press frenzy that followed, Mattoon became a household name. Their nefarious villain made headlines across the country. But within a matter of weeks, Mattoon's chief of police, C.E. Cole, announced that he was closing the case. The gasser would never be apprehended. His reasoning? Mattoon was seized by an epidemic of mass hysteria. Cole told the press that the phantom anesthetist had never existed. The character was a figment of the town's overactive imagination. Instantly, Mattoon became a national laughingstock. Shame seized the entire town, but hit the mad gasser's victims hardest. They must have been attacked by something. They'd experienced physical symptoms. A number of them saw shadowy figures or found footprints outside their house after being attacked. One found a skeleton key and a tube of lipstick in their yard. Another found a soaked rag on their porch. They were being gaslit by their chief of police and the culprit was still at large. Nobody knew what to do or where the gasser would strike next. They got their answer a few days later. On the heels of Cole's announcement came the final news of an unofficial mad gasser sighting. On September 16, 1944, Edna James told the Chicago Herald American that she awoke in the early morning hours to a strange smell coming from her kitchen. Curious, she followed the scent to its source. She wondered whether she'd left food out or the refrigerator open. Nothing could have prepared her for what she saw, or rather, what she claimed to see. Allegedly, an enormous, ape-like man stood by her refrigerator. As soon as she spotted him, Edna felt her heart race. She'd never seen anything like this invader before. He had facial warts, long arms, and made grunting sounds. He looked more like a Neanderthal than a modern human. As soon as the intruder saw Edna, he raised a large gun and shot gas into the air. Within seconds, Edna fell faint and fell to the floor. When she looked up, the ape man had vanished. Two days later, Edna claimed that she saw the beast again. She owned and operated the Lincoln Inn and was working the front desk when, without warning, it appeared in the bustling lobby. Fear washed over her. Edna didn't know if he was there to attack her or her guests. She scanned the room, searching for an escape route, until she noticed something odd. Nobody else was panicking. In fact, nobody seemed to be seeing the creature at all, not even the patrons who were standing right next to him. It seemed that Edna was the only person who could see the mad gasser. 
Edna picked up the receiver to call the police. She only glanced away from the ape man for a moment, but when she looked up again, he disappeared. Rather than subject herself to a medical examination and the police's ridicule, Edna chose not to make an official report. Instead, she took her story to the papers. She revealed that the mad gasser wasn't a man or a woman. It was a spectral ape armed with a fume gun. The Chicago Herald-American was all too happy to take Edna James' testimony. Naturally, their coverage depicted her story as wild and outlandish. Readers skimming through the headlines treated Edna as a joke. Her fantastic tale all but sealed the Mad Gasser's fate as a figment of Mattoon's imagination. Her claims were too bizarre for readers to take seriously. Edna's account, in addition to the incident at the movie theater that we discussed last week, suggests the town may have succumbed to a mass psychogenic illness, or MPI. MPI used to be known as mass hysteria. It refers to a phenomenon where a large group of people succumb to the same apparent disease. But their malady isn't caused by germs. It's a psychological response to a stressful situation. MPIs create physical symptoms that don't have a clear biological cause. In the case of the mad gasser, people experienced a burning sensation in their throats, nausea, bouts of vomiting, and even temporary paralysis. They attributed their illness to a strange gas they'd smelled. But the police and doctors never found a trace of the fumes or any physical sign that they'd made anyone sick. So they concluded the illness was all in the minds of the victims' heads. Outbreaks of MPI can often be traced to a traumatic event within the community and commonly occur in populations experiencing severe anxiety. For example, experts generally agree that a series of scarce harvests and peasant uprisings led to the Dancing Plague of 1518. This is considered one of the earliest recorded instances of an MPI. In the summer of 1518, hundreds of townspeople took to the streets of Strasbourg in modern-day France to dance feverishly until they collapsed. Some even died. They weren't celebrating. Their pain and distress was clear. They literally couldn't stop themselves. Mattoon in 1944 may have been just as uneasy as Strasbourg was in 1518. Many residents had loved ones fighting overseas in World War II, and a particularly nasty strain of the flu had swept through the region. With so many people on edge, it wouldn't take much to ignite panic. After Mattoon citizens heard reports of a phantom anesthetist, if they caught whiff of a cooking gas or a sweet perfume, it could trigger panic. Likewise, in a town that's had multiple reports of mysterious break-ins, someone might see a squirrel rustling in the bushes and assume a prowler was at their window, or believe an ordinary shadow from a tree belongs to a fleeing attacker. This phenomenon is known as confirmation bias. That's the human impulse to interpret information to suit your predetermined beliefs. We've discussed it pretty extensively in previous episodes. Let's say, for whatever reason, you're convinced that cake has medicinal properties. If you eat some cake and start to feel better, 
you're going to be more likely to attribute the positive gains to the slice you just ate, even if you've been resting and drinking plenty of water. If you read a study that supports your opinion that cake is medicine, you'll accept it as true. If you read a contradicting report, you're more likely to explain it away. You might say that the person who published the information owns a pie shop and wants to defame cake. Or you might just call them a liar. Confirmation bias can color people's political and religious identity. It's one reason that hard data isn't always effective at changing people's minds about their deeply held beliefs. And in the case of the mad gasser, it might have inspired people to interpret ordinary sights and sounds as evidence that they were under attack. Why not? They already believed the culprit could be anywhere walking among them. Say you have loose window panes. Every time the wind blows, they rattle. But you're so used to it, you barely notice the sound. Until one day, after you read a news story about a mad gasser, and you assume the rattling noise must be someone trying to break into your house. And this wouldn't be the only example in which confirmation bias led to mass psychogenic illness. Take, for example, the June bug epidemic of 1962. As the name implies, the incident began in June 1962. A woman at an American-based textile factory fell mysteriously ill after supposedly opening a box of fabric shipped from England. The woman, whom we'll call Barbara, saw a bug bite on her skin just as she experienced a slew of strange symptoms, including fatigue, nausea, and disorientation. Within moments, she broke out in a full body rash. Her supervisor suspected that she had come down with the flu and advised her to go home. But Barbara was adamant that an insect had given her a disease. The following day, several more workers fell ill at their stations. Within three days, 63 employees reported experiencing symptoms similar to Barbara's. The media began asking questions about hazardous work conditions, and the factory had no choice but to temporarily shut down. They underwent a full insect inspection and fumigation. But besides a few gnats and a beetle, no bugs turned up. Confident that conditions were safe, the factory owners called their workers back. They assured their employees that their symptoms were all in their heads, and it worked. The illnesses abruptly stopped. Just like at Mattoon. Reports of gassing ceased after the chief of police, C.E. Cole, publicly declared that the town was in the grips of mass hysteria. On the heels of his announcement, the citizens realized there was nothing to be afraid of, so they stopped imagining gas attacks. As an explanation, mass hysteria also cleared up the puzzling lack of motive for anyone conducting the so-called attacks. All along, police were flummoxed by the gassers' unpredictability. The victims were seemingly random from all walks of life and races. Nothing was ever stolen from their homes. Now they had an answer. The gasser didn't need a motive because they didn't exist. In short, MPIs can explain a lot of the circumstances surrounding the Mattoon gas attacks, but there are a few details that don't add up. First, the victims don't exactly fit the profile of a population that's normally susceptible to a mass psychogenic illness. But more importantly, 
an MPI can't explain why the earliest victims imagined the exact same attack before reports of the mad gasser were made public. So maybe Chief Cole's mass hysteria theory was actually part of a cover-up. Coming up, the gender biases behind hysteria diagnosis. Hi everyone, it's Molly. If you haven't had a chance to check out the playful new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from ParCast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know one another without the distraction of appearances. But in the end, is personality enough for these strangers to fall head over heels? Or, once the cameras are turned on, will they head for the hills? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On September 12, 1944, Mattoon's chief of police, C.E. Cole, announced that the mad gasser didn't exist. The town's residents were experiencing a bout of mass psychogenic illness. But many doubted Cole's explanation, and with good reason. He wasn't a psychologist, and Mattoon didn't really fit the profile of an MPI. For example, the best documented instances of mass psychogenic illness happen in enclosed areas. Usually, numerous witnesses observe a trigger event firsthand before they're infected. A trigger event is the incident that ignites the fear or paranoia. For example, at the textile factory, the trigger event was Barbara's bug bite and subsequent illness. It happened on the factory floor, and all her co-workers witnessed the incident. Likewise, the dancing plague of 1518 started when one woman began dancing in the street for the entire city to see. But in the case of Mattoon's mad gasser, there's no clear trigger event. At least three initial victims reported feeling nearly identical symptoms. Significantly, their attacks occurred before the alleged anesthetic prowler had been written about in the local news. Therefore, it's reasonable to argue that the earliest victims couldn't possibly have known about one another when they had their independent experiences. Additionally, victims of a mass psychogenic illness usually know one another. In the June bug epidemic, they were co-workers, but in Mattoon, there were no social or work connections linking the victims. In fact, many of the mad gasser's targets likely never met. Mattoon was a small town with a population of roughly 15,000, 
but it certainly wasn't as confined as a factory. It's also important to note that when Chief Cole announced that the Mad Gasser was an instance of MPI, he had a vested interest in closing the case as quickly as possible. All eyes were on him. People were scared. Community leaders and local business owners had formed their own militia. Rumors flew around town that the FBI had gotten involved. On top of that, he may have let sexist assumptions color his judgment. Up until the late 1970s, hysteria was a broad term used to diagnose women suffering from mental health conditions. Behavioral changes that were considered unwelcome by men, including reduced sex drive, anxiety, and depression, were commonly chalked up to hysteria. The phrase comes from the Greek root word hystera, meaning womb or uterus. Essentially, the affliction was a catch-all for women acting out of line. The American Psychiatric Association officially dropped the term in 1952, but it still took some time for public mindset to evolve. In the mid-1970s, a sociology professor at Western Illinois University named Dr. David Miller examined past hysteria diagnoses. He noted that it was often used to provide closure in mysterious cases that didn't have another clear solution. This was particularly true in those involving so-called contagious behavior among females. In the June bug epidemic, 95% of the factory employees were women, as were all but two of the 63 bitten workers. Dr. Miller noted that if the factory had more male workers, the case may not have been written off as mass hysteria so quickly. Mattoon undoubtedly suffered from gender bias as well. After all, many of the town's male residents were away at war, and most of the gas attack victims were women. And for a clear-cut example of how sexism may have colored the Mattoon investigations, look no further than the field study conducted in 1944 by Donald M. Johnson. According to Scott Maruna, author of The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Johnson was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois at the time. He was probably only a freshman or sophomore and fulfilling the requirements of an introductory psychology class. Nevertheless, he wrote one of the earliest academic papers on the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. With help from some of his professors, Johnson submitted it to the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology in 1945. They accepted Johnson's paper, likely because of Mattoon's notoriety at the time, and not for his research methods, which were arguably flawed. Honing in on hysteria as the probable cause, Johnson excluded the names of many male victims from his study. Reading his research, one would think that women were the only people who had experienced the gas attacks. Furthermore, the article never mentioned that only four out of the 33 reported victims were subjected to medical exams and deemed hysteric. Even if all four were having something akin to a panic attack, that doesn't prove that the other incidents were imagined. Four out of 33 isn't exactly a large percentage of the total reports. Now, Johnson noted that some victims did experience physical symptoms, nausea and vomiting. But he dismissed those reports, implying that the patients were unreliable witnesses to their own ailments. 
He failed to assign any importance to the multiple eyewitnesses who'd been present at the attacks and had corroborated the events and the symptoms. In fact, Johnson's study relied very little on actual eyewitness testimony. But this was probably not for lack of effort. It's not that he didn't bother to track down bystanders. It's that nobody was willing to talk to him. Johnson had made it pretty evident that he believed Mattoon was the site of an MPI. Unsurprisingly, nobody who experienced the attacks wanted to sit down for an interview knowing he intended to essentially paint them and their neighbors as liars. Of course, Johnson found other willing participants, specifically within one workforce, the local police department. Chief C.E. Cole and his officers happily supplied Johnson with testimony that supported his MPI theory. After all, no police officer had ever laid eyes on the prowler. The majority of the victims had already recuperated from their mysterious illnesses by the time the cops arrived on the scene. So as far as the police force was concerned, the attacks might have all been falsified. This made for a mutually beneficial arrangement. Johnson received testimony to add credibility to his undergraduate research paper, and Cole had the stamp of approval from a burgeoning psychology student. But many residents of Mattoon refused to accept the MPI theory, even as Chief Cole and Johnson closed the case. The chief had so much success convincing others that he was right, in part because he adopted a stance that catered to a wide audience. He argued that the mad gasser wasn't real, but the gas was. Anyone who claimed they'd simply spotted a prowler suffered from an MPI. Anyone who experienced real symptoms had gotten sick from the fumes released by the nearby Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company plant. Specifically, Cole pointed to the factory's use of carbon tetrachloride. That's a colorless liquid with a sweet smell, which means it fit the description that many victims reported. Atlas Imperial was likely using the compound in their fire extinguishers, but carbon tetrachloride also functioned as a component in insect repellent and fumigant. There's not much research about the long-term effects of carbon tetrachloride on the human body. The EPA has classified it as a probable carcinogen. As for its short-term effects, the compound's list of potential symptoms reads a lot like those reported in Mattoon. The EPA says it can trigger nausea, vomiting, and headaches. It seems unlikely that it could cause temporary paralysis in a person, but again, there's still a lot we don't know about carbon tetrachloride. As airtight as that all sounds, the manager of the Atlas Imperial plant, a man named W.J. Webster, quickly refuted Cole's hypothesis. Carbon tetrachloride had been in use at the factory for decades, and no employee had ever complained of any side effects. The idea that his facility was to blame for the mad gasser incidents was, in his words, ludicrous. Webster even brought an official from the state health department into the plant to investigate. The agent testified that there was no possibility of carbon tetrachloride vapors getting into the outside atmosphere in any amount of concentration that would even closely approximate a toxic condition. 
In other words, whatever amount of carbon tetrachloride may have escaped from the factory, it was too diluted to paralyze or sicken anyone in Mattoon. Additionally, Webster pointed out that even if his factory did somehow release concentrated toxic gas, the incident wouldn't fit the mad gasser's profile. Remember, the attacks only targeted small spaces. On several occasions, a woman in one room would get sick while family members who were elsewhere in the house felt fine. If the Atlas Imperial plant unleashed enormous quantities of carbon tetrachloride in Mattoon, everyone would get sick at once. Plus, the gasser reports only came in at night. The plant was primarily operational during the day, making it even more unlikely that the fumes would seep out while the alleged attacks were happening. Which means the Atlas Imperial theory is just as unlikely as mass hysteria. And that leaves us with one probable hypothesis. The mad gasser was real. Unfortunately, that solution raises more questions than answers. We don't know their identity, their motives, or whether they ever faced consequences for their crimes. But we can make some educated guesses based on their record, which might include a series of gassings that happened outside of Mattoon. Turns out, there's a decades-long history of unsolved gas attacks, all of which may have been perpetrated by the same phantom anesthetist. Coming up, we'll examine the incidents that happened outside of Mattoon. Now, back to the story. Ten years before the Mattoon incidents, on December 22, 1933, a Botetourt County, Virginia resident named Cal Huffman noticed a strange gaseous smell in his farmhouse. He determined that it was drifting in through an open window. The fumes made his wife gag and feel lightheaded. She went into another room to sleep off the effects. Soon after she left, the fumes dissipated. Cal put the strange incident out of his mind. But two hours later, the smell returned again. This time, Cal called the sheriff. When law enforcement arrived, Cal joined them on the hunt for a source of the strange gas. They didn't find anything, and it didn't take long for the scent to disperse. The sheriff shrugged off the incident and left. But moments after his departure, a third wave hit the Huffman home, this time even more pungent than before. The scent overwhelmed the whole family, even their children. Fighting a wave of nausea, Cal called a doctor. While they waited for the physician to arrive, two of Cal's children sat at an open window. They spotted a person swiftly leaving their family's property, but couldn't make out who it was. As soon as they felt well enough to step outside, they searched the vicinity. All they uncovered was a pair of footprints, apparently from a woman's high-heeled shoes. Listeners will remember that the Mattoon gasser left behind a tube of lipstick and two sets of heeled footprints. Perhaps these two cases had a common perpetrator. Sadly, no more information was ever reported on the Huffman case. But another bizarre gas-related incident followed soon after. A couple in Cloverdale, Virginia, returned home from their church's Christmas service to find their house filled with a mysterious, sweet-tasting gas. 
The same week, fumes disturbed the occupants of a home in nearby Troutville, Virginia. Again, the vapor only affected those in one room. Roanoke Times reported on the mysterious gas man disturbing the citizens of Botetourt County. But these incidents didn't cause a media frenzy like in Mattoon, probably because the attacks apparently stopped after they made the news and were forgotten. That is, until January 1934, a few weeks later. Seven more attacks occurred between the 11th and the 24th, and all of them happened in Botetourt County. Victims experienced symptoms that include nausea and a sensation of being choked. A local doctor later determined the gas used in the attacks was a chlorine compound. But knowing that information didn't bring the police any closer to finding the perpetrator. After more citizens found themselves victimized by a mad gasser, officials escalated their tactics. On January 30th, the Botetourt County Board of Supervisors offered a $500 reward for an anesthetist's capture. Meanwhile, Virginia passed a law against the, quote, release of noxious gases in public or private places, end quote. The offense was punishable for up to 20 years in prison. This ruling caused a rift in the county, dividing those who feared for their safety and those who believed the area's gas panic had spun out of control. In February, a slew of false alarms prompted the Roanoke Times to walk back their concerns and proclaim the gasser make-believe. The claim of MPI also marked the end of any gassing reports in Botetourt County, just as they had in Mattoon and in the June bug epidemic. But phantom anesthetist accounts cropped up in other parts of the country. On February 1st, 1944, just over six months before the first attack in Mattoon, an elderly couple smelled a sweet gas filling their small home. As weakness spread through their limbs, they fled and sought medical help. Within hours, they fully recovered, but their neighbors weren't so lucky. The three residents who lived next door to the elderly couple died suddenly in the night while performing their evening chores. The deaths perplexed authorities. Their bodies didn't have any visible injuries. There were no signs of struggle, no known health problems. Ultimately, officials ruled that they had died by asphyxiation. The sweet-smelling gas reported next door seemed to be the most obvious suspect. But authorities had no leads. If the police wanted to find the real culprit, they'd have to wait for the attacker to strike again. Assuming the perpetrator was the same, the mad gasser hit Mattoon, Illinois next. But as was becoming a pattern, officials couldn't find enough evidence to point them towards the gasser's identity. So they remained at large. The final documented incident occurred on Christmas Day, 1961. In Houston, Texas, a church was in the middle of services when the building suddenly filled with a mysterious odor. Many of the occupants fell ill with nausea and fatigue. A short while later, they made full recoveries. Police couldn't determine where the fumes had come from, nor could they prove the latest incident was connected to any of the earlier gas attacks. But when taken as a whole, it's unlikely that all of these incidents were MPIs or the results of factory accidents. Interestingly, many of the Virginia attacks occurred in the same small region. 
one person could have easily perpetrated all the gassings, moving on to a new community once they got bored with one area, or if the heat got too intense. And it wouldn't have been difficult for a knowledgeable person to brew a toxic gas at home. In the mid-1900s, it was common for academics to own a chemistry set. If the first three attacks in Mattoon were performed by a flesh-and-blood gasser, it's even possible that copycat anesthetists may have followed in his or her footsteps. This would also account for the variations in the eyewitness reports. As we discussed last week, numerous Mattoon residents spotted a prowler during gas attacks. But their descriptions of the criminal varied, from a tall man dressed all in black to a woman in men's clothing to a short, heavyset figure. Of course, that's not taking into account Edna James Neanderthal. A real gas attack could even be the trigger event for a later MPI outbreak. Picture this. A real phantom anesthetist targets a handful of homes in Mattoon, Illinois. They've been active for decades, and they know they need to skip town soon to avoid capture. But something odd happens. Their victims make the news, and the entire community ends up on edge and paranoid. Even though the gasser isn't around anymore, residents see their work everywhere. A possum scrambling over a fence is a prowler fleeing the scene. A whiff of gas from the stove is a deadly vapor. An anxiety attack is the work of an evil mad gasser. In other words, the incidents in Mattoon might have been both real and a mass psychogenic illness. It's no wonder the police couldn't identify a culprit. They couldn't sort the authentic reports from the imagined ones, and they ended up dismissing all their witnesses. If that's true, Police Chief Cole's declaration was deeply unfair to the people who fell prey to the gasser. It meant they were victimized twice, first at the phantom anesthetist's hands, and again when they were wrongfully labeled as liars or frauds. But the tactic was shrewdly effective. It nipped any future MPI-inspired reports in the bud. Ultimately, we'll never know for sure if the mad gasser existed, let alone determine who they were and why they did what they did. But perhaps it doesn't matter, because the phantom anesthetist may never be as terrifying or as deadly as the monsters who exist in our collective imagination. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. For more information on The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria by Scott Maruna, and Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures by Lauren Coleman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Katie Burris with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. 
Fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petras. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, there's no better time to follow your heart and check out the hit Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if personality alone is enough to make a love connection. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.